Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 39 is where we left off a couple weeks ago before Easter in our journey through Genesis. We've got about another month left before we end up in Genesis. And this morning, we find ourselves in a, just a really important chapter that gives us really weapons from the Word of God, a picture, an example of how to just to fight flesh and sin. So if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the Bibles that's in the, the rack in front of you. If, as we always say, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible as our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Genesis chapter 39 in that Bible on either page 25 or 33, depending on which copy of, of the Bible you have. Same version, just a few different copies in there. One cover's a little shinier than the other, but they're both the same. So here's what, here's what our plan is. Genesis 39 is just thick and full of truth that we could spend a lot of time going through. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to make a few uh, observations about really some wide-angle truths, a very important wide-angle truth that we see in this text. And then we're going to zoom in to and look at how Joseph resisted temptation, in particular the advances of, of Potiphar's wife. And then uh, we're going to, from there, really kind of trying to equip ourselves with some tools, uh, with really kind of how to, uh, give us some steps as to what the Word of God would say to us about how to resist temptation. Now here's my, here's a, a burden that I have before we read and before I pray and read and we begin, is that first of all, I I think all of us understand that we live in just a, a sin-saturated, sexually uh, debased culture. And to some degree, all of us are, are part of that and have, have drank from that fountain. We're just kind of a product of that culture. And I realize that in this room, there are certainly men and women that have uh, really had their hearts and maybe their lives ravaged by sexual sin. And I want you to know that in particular, I'm, I, this week I've been thinking of and praying for you and asking that God by His Holy Spirit would give you grace. And I think this is not just a problem for men. I think ever increasing in our culture, this is a problem for women. And I think it's even maybe in some ways harder on women because it's, it's more taboo for you to even admit struggles in this area. So know that wherever you may be on that spectrum, um, I just have been praying for you in particular, those that are in the midst of a battle or you are suffering the consequences of failure in this area, whether it's you personally or something that's happened to you. And then secondly, uh, my burden is that we don't just read this chapter and say, oh, well, you know, that I'm not dealing with that specific scenario. You know, my master's wife has never hit on me, so that's not me, so I can check out on this. Boy, I wonder who in this room's going through that. I want you to broaden, I want us to broaden the category, and I want us to think about the goodness and grace of God in just human sexuality. 
And I, I want you to know that we believe biblically that God has given sex and the pleasure that comes with it as a gift to mankind. And listen to me carefully on this. It's only legitimate and it's only truly satisfying and righteous expression is the one flesh union between a man and a woman in marriage. And so if you are a heterosexual and you are engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage, don't write yourself out of this particular scenario because you're not dealing with this component of sexual temptation. If you're a young guy and you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you need to hear the warning and the severe words of this chapter. If you're a young person, maybe, or an old person that's struggling with even same-sex attraction, I want you to know that you're welcome to... We love you, and we want to come alongside you and care for you. But know that even though this particular example may not be what you in particular are dealing with, but yet, yet the, the, really the, the truth and the beauty of what God has applies to you as well. And so I pray that we would broaden the scope of what God is saying to us through his word. And that God would do a few things. First, if you are not trusting in Christ, that he would give you a new heart so that you could even fight and live for the glory of God and true satisfaction. And if you are a Christian, I pray that God would put steel in your spine and that he would whet your appetite for, for his way in obedience to him, which can only truly satisfy us. So let me pray, and then we'll read, and then we'll work through this text. Oh, Father, as we, as we come to this text, I pray that you would help us. We desperately need your help. There are people in this room who have been ravaged, have given themselves over, have been victims of this sin. And I think to some degree that probably applies to all of us on some level. Pray that you'd help us. Pray that you, as we work through this text, would lift up our eyes and that we would see Jesus. And we, we would realize that only he can satisfy. And there is greater pleasure in you than any broken counterfeit joy. I pray, Lord, for my friends that have come into this room and they're not yet trusting in Christ, that by your kindness you might make them alive and let them see and savor Jesus. And I pray that you'd help us this morning as we look at this text for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. So remember, chapter 38 that Wayne took us through a couple weeks ago was a sort of interlude there about Judah and Tamar. But chapter 37 before chapter 38 ended with Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. And that becomes kind of the dominant theme that we're going to deal with for the rest of Genesis. And now we see Joseph picking back up what's happening to him, being sold into slavery. So he's been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. 
So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Now, just a little pause there. Remember, back in Genesis 12, months ago, God gave Abraham this promise, and he said, through you, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to bless them, and through them, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And now we see, in a way that we never would have anticipated, that being fulfilled through his great-grandson, Joseph. We would have imagined at Genesis 12 when God said, I'm going to give you all these children, Abraham, and through these children, I'm going to bless the world. We would have thought that would have been sort of triumphalistic and like conquering, and they're going to establish this authority, and everybody's going to understand it and bow down to it. But it's actually through a very difficult circumstance of Joseph being sold into slavery that God is mediating his blessing through and fulfilling his promise to Abraham by blessing this Egyptian slave owner whom Joseph is a captive of, but yet he's blessing them. So God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? So he blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, She caught him by his garment. Man, you wonder if years later, Joseph was thinking, me and my clothes. Remember his his coat of many colors that his brothers were jealous about and used that to sell him into slavery and then brought it back to their dad to sort of trick dad. Now he's got this, yeah, man. But she caught him by his garment saying, verse 12, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled And got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought, he, meaning her husband, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant 
whom you, notice who she's blaming for this whole thing, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison. Now that's significant because in this culture, certainly if this would have happened, it would have been very customary for the, ser- for the master to just take the life of the servant. But it's almost like his anger's muted. Maybe because he kind of knew his wife. I don't know, just speculating there. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Okay, so before we, we look at how Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife's advances, I want you to notice sort of the, the sandwich, really, the structure of this chapter. It starts off by talking about Joseph, who has been sold into slavery by his brothers, now in captivity in Egypt, going about his business and being blessed by God and in fact being used by God to be a great means of blessing to his captors, to his owners, the Egyptians. Then the middle part of the chapter is this terrible evil that happens to Joseph that he successfully resists and then he's thrown in prison and then the third Part of, the, of the, uh, the last part of the chapter is Joseph then succeeding again, God blessing him again despite the fact that he was sinned against in a horrible way and has been treated unjustly again. And we see that God, I think a major theme of this chapter is that God is good on his promise. He has called a man named Abraham out from wandering in the forest, said, I will bless you, and through you, Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the earth, and you will be my people, and no matter what happens to you, I'm going to bless you. And you can imagine this being read generations later by young Jewish children being read this story from their parents as they're in Babylonian captivity towards the end of the Old Testament, wondering whether or not God was going to be faithful to them, wondering whether or not the God who they heard about is really true to his word. And we see that this example becomes an encouragement that that God, when he promises to bless his people, doesn't just promise us just sort of everything working out fine. But he promises that despite what happens to us in an evil world, he is with his people. I think this chapter just absolutely smashes the prosperity gospel. I mean, so if you've ever tuned on TBN and watched any, you know, slick preacher that promises blessing if you only sow a seed into his ministry, I mean, come on, I think you know that's super duper ridiculous, right? I hope you realize that by now. And if if you're sort of in that, please, please, Let's talk. Let's talk. I want to help you get out of that ridiculous false gospel. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. 
But I, I don't think that's necessarily the problem of the majority of people in this room. I think m- the majority of us probably are, are sort of susceptible to a kind of karma gospel. You know, that if I just sort of obey the principles, it's kind of the, the sort of the American sort of uh, success gospel, that if I just become a Christian, do good things, start to live by God's principles, then there's sort of a cause and effect relationship between the way I, the cause of my obedience, then should affect me in a sort of positive way. And we, we sort of bring that sort of to God when, when we expect Him to sort of meet our obedience to Him with some sort of, at least, I mean, we don't necessarily want a jet, right? Or like, you know, a Cadillac or whatever. But, you know, we, we kind of want, like, we want our kids to make the all-star team and to get the little sticker that we can put on the car. And we, we sort of want that, right? But may, maybe it doesn't work that way. May, maybe, like Joseph, terrible things happen to you and God still is true to his people, showing us that there's something bigger and better than these 80 years. There is eternity with him. So we could spend all day talking about that, but we won't. I want us, and I think this will be most helpful to us in our culture and in our setting, to zero in on Joseph and the components of his resistance. So let me read verses 6 through 10 again, picking up halfway through there in verse 6. It says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Okay. I, I see five components of Joseph's resistance of Potiphar's wife's advances here. I just kind of want us to work through them, and then we're going to look at the tools that God gives us in our context to fight temptation. I see these five components, not necessarily in order of importance, but in the order that we see them in the text. The first is that Joseph had a sense of purpose. Joseph had a sense of purpose. Notice there in the verse it says that when he was approached by Potiphar's wife, he says, well, how can I do this? I'm on this mission for my master. He's given me all that, that, that he has, and he's put me in charge of it. He had a, a mission. His life was dominated by something greater than his senses and the fulfillment of his temporary pleasures. And I think this is so important to see. We need to be, men in particular, we need to be overcome and dominated by the greatness of God and the glory of what he has for us in living for him. But, and I think this is because we're just prone to this as Americans, as soon as I say that, I also want to qualify that and say, beware of what I've just kind of called the epic trap, right? We want everything in our purpose to be epic, right? We want, we want Mel Gibson, Braveheart. We want, what's, what's the other show? The Australian dude, Russell Crowe and Gladiator. We want that type of mission, right? 
And I, look, I, I resonate with those movies. I think I probably watched each of them about 15 times. One time, I almost painted my face blue and ran down the side of a mountain just to get in touch with my inner Scottish warrior or whatever. <laughs> and although I resonate with, with that, I think that there's a danger in that because if we, if we are just wanting our lives to be epic, you know, and a mission to just go for, and that, that's how I'm going to fight sin. I'm just going to be consumed with the, this epic mission. The problem is, like, most of our lives aren't epic, right? We're like regular dudes who are trying to scratch out a living. And you can get charged up and have a men's weekend and go off in the woods and watch Braveheart and paint yourself blue and... and Talk about how you're going to conquer the, you know, slay the dragon in the Colosseum. But then you got to go back to the cubicle and be just a regular dude. And it can almost become kind of neutering, right? I think that we should, in a sense, embrace the joy and the beauty of ordinary lives. And in ordinary lives, God does extraordinary things And every man, every woman in this room has a a greater sense of mission and purpose. Imagine this. I mean, that God would save us and then he would put us in that cubicle or he would put us in that play group or he would put us in that platoon or that company or that battalion so that we wouldn't have our faces painted blue or be in a, a, a Roman Colosseum slaying lions and dragons or whatever, but that we would be everyday people being used by a holy and good God in our everyday ordinary circumstances for something far, far bigger and greater than just the fulfillment of our temporary urges. And I think that we need to be caught up in that ordinary, beautiful sense of purpose. I think the bottom line is that many of us are capable and are gifted for great and ordinary things, but we are trading in the joy that comes with having that sense of purpose and mission for just cheap, counterfeit thrills that never satisfy. Joseph had a sense of purpose. Two, he had a sense of, of gratitude. Just notice there that he, he says, he hasn't kept anything back from me except for you. Joseph pondered all that his master had entrusted to him, and he was satisfied with what he did have. This is it's like the opposite of Adam and Eve, right? In the garden in Genesis 3, they looked at all that they didn't have, that one thing, and they ignored all that they did have, whereas Joseph looks at all that he does have, and he uses that as motivation, as gratitude, as, as this, this thanksgiving in his heart to say, I have all of this, this one thing my master's withheld from me. How can I, how can I, how can I or trade in all this for, for that? I think just as I was pondering this this week, I thought a, a good thing for my heart to do to help me fight temptation and sin, a good thing maybe for, for you to do, a good thing maybe for, in particular, the, the men in this room, to do, the married men in this room to do, would be to sit down and list out all of the gifts that God has given you in your spouse and in your family and in those around you. And just ponder, even in their ordinariness, God's 
graciousness to you. And whether or not the temporary counterfeit joy is, is worth all of that. Joseph makes this determination that, no, I, I'm thankful for what God has given me, and I'm satisfied with that. He had a sense of gratitude. Thirdly, he had a sense of, of sin. Notice in, in the, the text there, in verse 9, he, he actually calls it. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin? He called it what it was. There was no therapeutic language here. Notice he didn't say, I've got issues. <laughs> how can I do this great issue? Right? Or how, no, he called it wickedness. He didn't call it a disease or an addiction. He called it great wickedness. Now listen, let me, let me say that I'm not saying that addictions... And diseases are not real. But I'm saying at its core, it's sin. And we all are dragged away by our own lusts that are in us. And we must realize that and call it what it is. It is sin. Joseph had a sense that this is sin, that this is wickedness. And then fourthly, I think this follows right after that, he had a sense of God. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin, not just against Potiphar, my master, but how can I do this against God? He understood what made this sin so wicked and so heinous. Ultimately, it wasn't committed against Potiphar or against his wife or against anybody else, but most primarily doing this, giving into this would be to defame God. God and his holiness and his goodness. To, to understand this, we have to understand that God is not like a grumpy grandfather with his arms folded just wanting us to tuck in our shirt, comb our hair, and obey, right? I think too many of us in our culture maybe grew up in kind of the Bible belt that was sort of all truth and no grace, and didn't give us the picture of the beauty of God, and, and subconsciously, you, you, we view God as like the, the old man in Dennis the Menace, you know? He's just, he's the get off my lawn God, right? Get off my lawn! And that's the way we picture him. And when we see God in that unbiblical way, we don't see that wrapped up in the holiness of God is the joy and satisfaction and the goodness and like real life. In fact, Kwame proclaimed it for us that, that, that joy and pleasure isn't just these 80 years. It is, it is eternity. It's, it's forevermore. There is, there is an increase of joy and pleasure and satisfaction in God that nothing in this broken world can compare with. And we, we have to be taken up in order to fight sin. We have to stare at the beauty of the glory and the satisfaction that is in God. In fact, I know some of you Presbyterians are going to love this right now. What is the first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and begrudgingly obey him forever? No! What is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Like, do you have in a category of your view of God enjoyment? 
taste and see, Psalm 34 says, that the Lord is good. And right, like right now, just stop. Maybe we could, like, maybe you're hoping I'll stop. I won't stop. But we could stop right now and just, like, God, anchor that down in our soul that you are better. Like, you're better than anything this world has to offer. You're better than any counterfeit joy. You're better than any figure of any naked woman or naked man. You are better than the affection of, of some, you know, guy that seems to have it all together, right? You're better than him. You're better. And look, nobody can realize that on their own. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to come in here week after week and hear the gospel and be enthralled with the beauty of the love of God in Christ for us. And we need to know his word and we need people reminding us of it because nobody can come to that conclusion on their own that God is better and he is to be, in fact, he desires to be enjoyed forever and ever. I was listening yesterday as I mowed my lawn, which is one of my favorite things to do in the world because it just, just can do it. No, just, I can do it. And <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about. No, nobody criticizes me. Nobody sends me an email about how I jacked up my lawn. I just do it. <laughs> Sorry, a little sensitive. I know I'm, I'll, I'll get therapy. Anyway, um, I was listening to this sermon by this pastor named Sam Storms who was <laughs> he was preaching about heaven and he was preaching about Jonathan Edwards. I don't know why this is capturing me like this, but he was preaching about Jonathan Edwards' view of heaven from the Bible. And I was riding my lawnmower in the back, mosquitoes and stuff, and I'm just crying tears because his brother was preaching about how Edwards would preach the sermon on heaven and he was pondering the infinite glory of God, that God's glory has no end. And in, in heaven, in heaven, when we're with him in unending time, the increase of our joy in heaven will never end. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine tomorrow's going to be better than today in heaven? And can you imagine there being like no end to that? Can you imagine? And can, you, can you then imagine the most pleasurable thing on this earth? Can you imagine? Just imagine with me. Just imagine like connecting even even in all righteousness, even sexually, like maybe the greatest pleasure that you can experience between a man and a woman in, in marriage and just the ecstasy of that moment. And can you imagine how small and faint and how incomparable that is to, to the ever-increasing enjoyment of God forever and ever? And tomorrow's better than today, and it just keeps getting better and better and better because there's no end, because God's glory and his joy and his beauty has no end, and heaven, what awaits us, just keeps getting better and better and better. And when we see that, friends, when we see that, it draws us like a magnet away from this broken counterfeit world, doesn't it? So mow your lawn and listen to a sermon by Edwards and cry. And get a sense of the glory of God. And, and do this, do this. If you have a commentary or, I mean, a, a concordance or just a Bible search thing, just, just type in the word satisfy. And just see how many times that comes up in the Bible. Psalm 90, verse 14, just one of many. The psalmist says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our ways. God, satisfy us. 
Friends, if there's one thing I just want to convince my own soul afresh of this morning and, and all of us in this room is that only God can satisfy. And his way of obedience to him, of expressing our sexuality only between the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, not before, not outside of, but in the confines of marriage is better. And then, if God has called you to singleness, to celibacy, so that he might free you up to to give all of your energy to serving him, if you never connect with a spouse on this earth sexually in any way, and you die never, never having given yourself sexually to another person because you are single, then you will lose out on nothing. Because Jesus, who is the happiest and the most fulfilled person that ever lived, never never had sex during his life on this earth. And all of us, you see, if you, if you couch sexual pleasure and the desires that are inside of us against the unending, ever-increasing joy of God, it will help us fight against these counterfeit pleasures. So Joseph had a sense of God, and finally, quickly, fifth, he had a sense of himself. He would not even be with her. She was coming after him, and he got out of that place. He protected himself. I could spend a lot of time on this, but just let's just think about context in our life. How we give ourselves over to the Internet, the environments that we put ourselves in, the carnality that we expose ourselves to on TV, And it is foolish of us to think that that does not have an impact on our soul and draw us away. What does it gain a man should he get his iPhone but lose his own soul? That's not in the Bible. I just kind of adapted a biblical verse for that. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Listen to these words from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And isn't it our tendency to say, oh, well, well, Jesus is really speaking metaphorically. No, it'd be, it'd, be better to, it'd be better to go through the rest of this life as Captain Hook than to go to hell. Do we believe that? Make, make war. I think this verse is saying, Brad, make war on your flesh that is still opposed to the glory of God. All right, so there I see the components of of Joseph's resistance. Let's now just kind of take a broad, wide-angle view of just let's collate what I think this chapter is saying to us and what all of the scriptures would say to us and just six very quick tools on how to fight sexual temptation and sin. One, we need to fight it with the grace of the gospel. Joseph is a, is a great example for us. But we need more than an example 
we need a savior. And after his resurrection, Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says that all of that Old Testament scripture, all of it was speaking to me. And so Joseph is just like a shadow of Christ, right? Joseph is just a a picture of, of Christ, who is the one, as Reynolds read for us earlier on, he is the one who endured, who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And he didn't just provide an example for us, but he laid down his life for us and bore God's punishment on the cross so that we can now be made right with God. And then he rose again from the grave. And because he's alive, he makes his people alive. He gives us life and he gives us his righteousness. So we need more than just a moral example. We need somebody who dies for our failure and then rises again from the grave, makes us alive, and now gives us power and tools to live for him. This is what the Bible tells us the gospel is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We, we read it all the time here. It's so good. It's so powerful. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake. That means God's people. He made him, the Father, made him the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's an exchange happening there. Jesus takes our sin and the punishment that should have been ours, and he gives us his righteousness, and now it's ours, and we now are alive and can fight sin. I think a lot of us understand the power of the gospel to forgive, but we forget that the gospel also empowers that God gives us his grace. He gives us Christ's righteousness. He gives us his strength to then fight. And how does he do that? That leads us to, to number two. So we fight with the grace of the gospel and we fight with God's spirit that indwells. So the good news of the gospel is that we were dead in our sins, unable to do anything in and of ourselves to save ourselves, We've now been made alive by God. Remember, we we talked about that last week on Easter Sunday, Colossians 2. He made us alive together with him in Christ. Now we're alive, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. And now, because we're alive, we are able to live the way that he calls us to live. We now have a, a new heart and a spirit. The Spirit of God lives in us, and it enables us. Where we were unable, now we are able, by God's grace, to live for Him. And now He tells us to walk in this way. So listen to these scriptures in, in Romans, in Colossians. Romans 8, verse 9 through 14, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh. In other words, you're not dead. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, and he is in you if you're a Christian, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does if you're a Christian, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And as a consequence of that, then Paul continues in verse 12, So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So so see what's going on there. You were dead, unable to follow God, unable to resist temptation. 
He made you alive. He gave you a new heart. He put his spirit inside of you. And he now enables you, you, us to actually do it, to make a decision to say no to that counterfeit pleasure and say yes to God. Will we do it perfectly in the remaining years that we have after our salvation? Of course not, friends. But we can, we can because God's spirit dwells in us. So he gives us the grace of the gospel. He gives us the spirit that indwells. And number three, he gives us the power of his word. So we fight with the power of God's word. This, <laughs> this, this, verse, is, this verse is gold to my soul. When I was a, a young soldier at Fort Benning 20-something years ago, and was on the verge of bankrupting my life because of sexual sin and temptation. My pastor from New York, that, the college that I went to when I was at West Point, called me, and he was just checking up on me. And he, he knew I was battling the flesh, and he, he read this verse to me. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Look, we'll take in, like we will binge on Netflix, won't we? Think about all the things we'll binge on. We'll binge on the golf today. In fact, I, Springer should have mentioned that all of you that come to help us pack up some stuff, we're going to have the masters on the TV in the youth room, so just, okay. We, but we'll binge on stuff, won't we? We'll binge on everything except God's Word. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I'm pleading with my own soul, I'm pleading with you that that we have this sword of the Spirit to take in to give us God's power. There are men and women in this room who routinely get chewed up and spit out over and over again by their flesh, the devil, and the world because they do not take in God's Word on a consistent basis. A few suggestions on how to take in God's Word. If, if, look, we just want shortcuts, don't we? I mean, like, okay, this is the place where the message where the pastor talks about the Bible reading plan. Yes, this is the place in the message where the pastor talks about the Bible reading plan. I, 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 don't, know how, I, don't, know how, I don't know how else to do it. I mean, this is not rocket science. If you don't have some consistent way to take in God's word, I just plead with you to fight. Like, he, he's put his spirit in you. Like, we can plan, can't we? We can plan. And if we can plan, we can plan to read God's word. And I, I just plead with you to, we have some in the resource room. I, I plead with you to, to, to start to take in God's word. Maybe it's just a, a baby step to start. Just start with a gospel. Start reading through the gospel of Mark, which I think is the most straightforward and a great place to start. And then start reading Paul's shorter epistle. Start reading Colossians and Ephesians. And just bask in the word and develop a habit and then grow from there. But God gives us his word that when we store it in our heart and when we meditate on it, when we read it, and when we gather with other Christians to hear it proclaimed and taught and discussed, friends, it 
does something. It has power. It works in us and gives us strength. Fourth, the fourth tool I think that God gives us is he gives us repentance and confession. This beautiful sermon in the early part of the church in Acts chapter 3, Peter gets up and he encourages the people in verse 19 of chapter 3, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. I think there's this great challenge, there's this trick that the enemy wants to play on us, that if we confess, if we repent, if we have other Christians in our life whom we are honest with, that somehow that will go badly for us if we really open up, when actually the inverse is true. Repentance and confession are like ice water in the desert of hidden sin. Why repent and confess? Because God shines the light of his grace via the confession that we offer to other Christians. Do they have the power to forgive? But know that there's something about God's light, about the community that God gives through other people that just algae of sin can't grow when the sun is shining. And if you are a man in this room and you are in some sort of hidden sin, brother do not leave this room without, preferably, you're talking to your wife this afternoon, but at minimum, finding another brother who's trusted and wise and mature and shining the good, gracious light of God and repenting to him. Do that. And then... Fifthly, he gives us, and this goes along with repentance and confession, he gives us community. So we fight temptation with and in community. He gives us other people. Listen to how we should live together as a church. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, I think that verse alone is a great argument for vital connection to a local church, for, for even membership in a local church, people that have authority over your life. Because it is possible for my heart to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I need people around me who I can be honest with and who I can confess to. And who then I have responsibility if they just start stop showing up and they're no longer here. They're on a list of names that I'm responsible for. And I go and say, brother, how are you? God gives us each other, the local church. Not just to be a little station that we go to weekly to fill up and hear a sermon and sing a few songs that we like and then go our way so that we've done our religious duty. Friends, that's folly. God gives us a local church so that we can actually live out this verse so that we can take care lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How arrogant is it of us to think that that couldn't be us? It can be us. In fact, it has been me. And God gives us community. He doesn't only give us people, but he gives us Great resources, men in particular, if you do not have some sort of software on your computer that is helping you to stay accountable, whether it's filtering out 
pornography or whether it's an accountability software, you are, it's like you're walking through a, a battle zone without a flak jacket on. And I can't, I can't recommend it enough. We have covenant eyes on our computer. There's several other ones. Please uh, talk to us about any of the pastors can help you get connected with even a free software to put on your, your computer. A book that we have for sale in the Resource Center, which I cannot recommend highly enough, is a book called Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace, written by a, a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It is outstanding. If you're a young man trapped in sexual sin or in trapped by pornography or just in any sort of sexual temptation, this is a wonderful reference. You should get this book and go through it with an older man. If you're an older man that is looking for a good resource to help younger men with, this is an excellent resource. Oh, that God would cause generations to encourage one another in this fight, and then he would give us this gracious, grace-filled community who has a sense of God, and we're going after him together with linked arms in our fight against counterfeit joys. And then finally, and I end with this, Sixth tool that God gives us to fight temptation and sin is that we do this with a greater joy in view, and we've touched upon this, that there's something better than the temporary fulfillment of a fleshly urge. And I see this pattern in the scriptures. We see it with Jesus, not necessarily fighting this type of temptation, but just all of the challenge of life. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So did you catch Jesus' motivation, how he endured struggle and trial and even temptation, and his desire to even not go to the cross? He endured it by looking forward to the greater joy of winning a people for himself through his work on the cross. We see the same pattern of the greater joy of obeying God as being the motivation not just for Jesus, but for Moses. A couple chapter, one chapter over in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to what it says about Moses. By faith, verse 24, chapter 11, Moses, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I love that verse because it admits that there's some measure of pleasure in sin, but it says that it's fleeting. And how do we resist fleeting counterfeit pleasures? Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ, that's just a biblical way of saying obeying God, even in the shadow of what he saw at the moment, which was obeying God in Christ, he considered the reproach of Christ or obeying God greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So how did Moses fight the temptation to sin? By looking for the greater joy of obeying God. It's better. It's better. God, obeying God is better. Young married man, it is better for you to enjoy the wife of your youth 
than to have all sorts of sexual dalliances outside of her and never get caught. It is better for you because there's coming a day when there will be a reckoning and God, God will be justified. His holiness will be upheld and, and we must find ourselves in him and, and we find ourselves in him by pursuing not just ruthless, joyless obedience where we grit our teeth and tuck in our shirts and be good little church boys who shoo off to Sunday school. Who can do that for more than a couple months? But we obey God by seeing the greater joy of obeying God and the unending satisfaction. Oh, that my heart would be convinced of this. And oh, that your heart would be too afresh. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us now. Take my feeble words and by your Holy Spirit, apply them to our hearts. Make them like an arrow that sticks fast. To the young single soldier in this room who is racked with guilt because of his double life, melt his heart and give him a picture of the beauty and joy that is in God. the middle-aged married businessman who can never put his phone down on his kitchen counter for fear that his wife might browse the history of his browser and see what he's looking at. Lord, would you help him come out of that dark closet that never satisfies and would he see the greater joy in you? For the young single woman who seems to find her prospects of marriage decreasing as she gets into her 30s or maybe 40s and she's tempted to give in to a counterfeit joy, Lord, would you give her a picture of the greater reward of Christ as so much sweeter than an earthly husband. Even as she prays righteously for you to grant her desire, would you captivate her with something greater? For the elderly man in his 70s, who is so broken because he thought by now he would finally and fully be done with this, but he still can't stop looking at a woman lustfully. Lord, even though he's been in your church and served your people for many years, would you maybe for the first time cause him to see the joy and beauty and satisfaction in you rather than in the counterfeit joy of the figure of a young woman? Would you do it, please? Because what hangs in the balance is your glory and our souls. I pray that you would do it.
for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.